This is uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi. To understand the predicament of anxiety, we need only sit down quietly, draw our attention inward, and watch our thoughts as they tumble by. Our fears and concerns need not assume vast proportions, but beneath the melody of constantly changing thoughts, punctuating them, like the thumping of the bass in a jazz quintet, is the persistent throb of worry and care, the second rhythm of the heart. Etymologically, uh, I'm, I'm told that uh, the the word dukkha, suffering, the first noble truth that there is dukkha. That that this um, its its roots, um, if you actually break it down into its its components, is um, there's some connotation of like an axle that doesn't quite fit perfectly. And when there's a, the kind of wheel well and axle not fitting quite perfectly, it's a little bumpy, right? And in fact, the, the author of uh, that book, um, Tanisara Bhikkhu, does not translate dukkha as suffering, but as stress. And Freud um, said that anxiety, at one point defined anxiety as, as that which gets us to act. You know, it was that fundamental in human life. Yeah. And we, we all know the experience of um, the feeling of something comes next, right? I'm a little bit waiting on something, yeah. And this this, um, aspect of of anxiety, restlessness, um, it's, it's, uh, we can see it in a very coarse ways and then as we get more and more quiet in increasingly subtle ways that the ways the the mind just is slightly tumbling forward is waiting on something or waiting for something and so this is a very um, deep and basic condition of our of our mind and um, a very worthy object of our practice. So some distinctions are helpful. I do want to distinguish fear and anxiety. Um, And fear um, being the value of fear we find is it, is it helps us avoid 
avoidable harms. Yeah? And uh, I remember Ajahn Amaro talking about... Uh, talking about our evolutionary history and the value of fear. And he was sort of joking that um, if, if our ancestors got to the edge of the cliff and had this like warm, loving feeling in their heart, just like gushing kind of love right there at the edge of that cliff, they weren't our ancestors, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so the, the legacy, the evolutionary mechanisms have conserved um, fear for reasons and for value. It's valuable to, uh, to have some, some kind of fear responses to avoidable harms. But with... Um, with anxiety, it's often um, we're we're anxious about um, about harms that can't be avoided, or we're anxious about harms that are extremely unlikely, or we're anxious about harms sometimes, often that are completely manufactured in imagination. Yeah. Um, and every once in a while, I, I think sometimes when we do get anxious, it, it can be like, um, it can be something like true alarm anxiety. Like I remember when during um, grad school, this is, this is, this was a low moment. Uh, uh, it was, um, it was about like eight months, just pure procrastination <laughs> and uh, w- and procrastinating in very creative ways, like going on meditation retreats and these things. But at some point, the anxiety sort of arose and was like, you need to do your... Your, your dissertation, it's time. <laughs> and uh, this was actually, this was actually helpful, you know, like to, to have the procrastination stopped working. Yeah. And the anxiety actually motivated me. But for the most part, our, uh, our anxiety is, uh, is, is not helpful. So this is from, uh, this is from The Onion. Yep, who reads The Onion? The satirical newspaper? Yeah, it's like a very honest publication. Um, so here, here they are. Um, uh, and you can see it's like a, a, the picture is, is a, a relatively young man in bed awake scribbling on a, on a pad. Quickly kicking off his sheets and reaching for a notepad on his nightstand, local 27-year-old Kyle Dowling reportedly sprang out of bed at 3 a.m. yesterday to jot down an idea for a brand new worry. (laughs) Sometimes the best, most crippling new anxieties just come to you in the middle of the night, so it's always good to have pen and paper nearby to record them, said Dowling 
rapidly scribbling several shorthand notes about a new feeling of debilitating self-doubt and (laughs) apprehension that had just spontaneously entered his mind. If I think uh, of a new paralyzing fear relating to my personal or professional life and I don't immediately write it down, there's a good chance I'll just totally forget about it (laughs) by the time I fall asleep four hours later. (laughs) Upon waking up and rereading his notes from the previous night, Dowling confirmed to reporters that the new worry was even greater than he first thought. Yeah. So that's that's the onion, yeah. But this this is um, Thomas Borkovec, who's a, a researcher at Penn State, who's who's sort of um, one of the the leading researchers on on worry, on actual worry, and and generalized anxiety. So this is a piece that he wrote that was a mo- much more you know he normally does clinical trials and and uh, but this was a much more reflective piece that he actually wrote describing his own process of his professional life and, um, and he says when i'm worrying i'm mostly engaging in thought or talking to myself this thinking triggered by internal or external cues that signal danger primarily concerns the future and involves the anxious anticipation of and the mental attempts to avoid the many negative events that I imagine might happen. The consequence of any perception of threat is the activation of basic fight or flight reactions, motivating attempts to escape or avoid. Quite naturally under these circumstances, I feel compelled to figure out how to prevent these bad things from happening or how to prepare myself for the worst. Worrying is a device that I believe can function to do this. Because I'm devoting large amounts of time to generating and attending to worrisome thoughts, much of my life is spent living in an illusion. We have this um, redemptive hope in worrying. Yeah. And sometimes when we're sitting on the, in the, on the cushion in our, in our seat, um, that center of narrative gravity that I was talking about, the center of narrative gravity is the a factory of worry. And maybe we can even sense how that process of worry is an attempt to keep us safe, to simulate the future in so many possible ways that we can't possibly be taken by surprise, to prepare the heart for the impact of uncertainty, of Anicca. Yeah. And so we have this very ambivalent relationship to the process of worrying itself. But we can notice that when we are in that orbit, as Borkovec said, we are 
there's a sense of living in this, um, of being separate. My experience, it's like being separated from life. It's like a buffer. When we're, the attention is pooled in that orbit of worry, there's just like this sense of disconnection. And some of what we're doing in our Dharma practice is, is, um, is actually learning that we, a part of us wants connection even more than pleasure or control. The part of us that really is longing for connection and to heal a kind of fundamental alienation that happens when we live in that center of narrative gravity. Now, anxiety, um, it's, it's always about uh, the future, right? And, and Jack even tells the story of, uh, you know, of um, a person, hi- I think it was like a person hiking and they, uh, they um, see the bear tracks or something. And they're, they're not afraid of bear tracks, they're afraid of the bear, right? And then they see the bear, and they're not afraid of the bear, they're afraid of being bit, and they're not af- right? And then they, the bear comes and bites them, and they're not afraid of actually being bit, they're afraid of dying, right? Or, and it just this escalating, like, like this future orientation, yeah? Um, and so it's useful to, <clears throat> to ask the question, well, our worrying seems, assumes that we have a good imagination. Yeah. But um, as it turns out, we, we don't really. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning that... Uh, um, both in terms of predicting what's going to happen, but also predicting how well we can absorb the impact of what does happen. And one of the findings from, it's like there's a whole research literature on affective forecasting. It's like predicting our emotional responses to an event. Yeah. And, uh, one of the the themes that emerges in reading some of this is that we could say that uh, we we underestimate our resilience. Yeah. That there's this kind of primitive fear of being overwhelmed by this event or that event, but uh, often, often we actually, as I was talking about, like the winds blow and they blow sometimes very strong. But that sense that something in us is going to be broken, yeah, that doesn't happen much. We underestimate our resilience. Now, um, part of the experience of anxiety <clears throat> is that we continually feel like we're reaching this fork in the road. Yeah. 
You know, does that make sense? Like, it, it feels like in our life, we just keep hitting these forks. And each moment feels like a fork in the road. And one way is right, and one way is wrong. One way is good, and one way is bad. And that sense of like perpetually arriving at these apparent forks is, is a part of anxiety. Which way is this going to go? Yeah. But I, there aren't that many forks in life. Yeah. And our imagination that we continue to arrive at these forks and that it's like, there's something in us that it feels like everything's at stake. Yeah. And it's like enlightenment or bust. <laughs> moment after moment. You know, even if it's much more subtle, you know, I'm just joking, but it's like, what's going to happen? Yeah. Yeah, there, there are. Uh, I think we just over overestimate what it means to go one way or the other, yeah. And that um, that ultimately, all we can do is take precious care of what's here. Yeah. So we we try we try to plan. Um, but um, some of what we're trying to do is plan or worry our way out of the first noble truth. It's like a sense of um, that if we we, uh, think about the future enough, maybe we can find our way through the labyrinth, yeah. Out of pain towards pleasure. But the Buddha said that we we um, we can give that up now, yeah. yeah. And that uh, the the anxiety that we expend trying to perfectly find our way through the labyrinth that. That's 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 um, that's a do, that's doomed a doomed mission, yeah. and that as we become more and more compulsively dependent on finding our way away from pain towards pleasure, that that all of the planning it generates is uh, is fatiguing, anxiety provoking. And so some of what we're learning to do is to, is to make peace with the human condition. To, to make peace with, with the first noble truth. To make peace with uh, the truth of, of uh, impermanence. I think uh, Pema Chodron said something like, um, 
you know, that, that it's important to distinguish um, uncertainty and anxiety. But we're really intolerant of uncertainty. And the more intolerant of uncertainty we are, the more under threat we feel and the more compulsive will be our attempts to plan, to prepare, to simulate all the possible futures. It's um, it's a kind of organizing fantasy of mine of just like holding the world still. You know that feeling of just like, just gonna like hold it there. And part of our practice is, is acclimatizing to groundlessness. Like that it doesn't stop. Yeah. That the flow of anicca, the flow of change doesn't stop. And we can find peace in that, but we can't, there's no, there's no way to get out of that river. Yeah. And there's no way to hold the water. Yeah. This is a, a, a deep theme in our practice. Some to to make peace with with anicca this is a very um, um powerful aspect of what we're doing yeah. and joseph goldstein said something like um you know the first the first discovery is that we're we've jumped out of a plane without a parachute. Yeah. But the second discovery is that there's no ground. Yeah. We want that ground. There's like a real craving to land. Yeah. And we try to land in all these, you know, a lot of maladaptive ways. But um, I, I'm feel my heart is feeling more open to like, yeah, this this river doesn't stop flowing, and insofar as I'm going to be at peace, it's going to be at peace in the river as the river. Now, in this process, we're. We're really, um, part of our redemptive belief in worrying comes out of that, the, the sense that we could be overwhelmed by experience. And the theme of equanimity, the cultivation, the development of equanimity, the kind of balanced mind that can absorb the impacts of life, of feeling. As we develop this equanimity, this, this um, 
capacity that that I think just takes time to cultivate. But as we develop it, we become less and less um, afraid of being overwhelmed by our inner life. And consequently, there's a kind of confidence in moving through our life that uh, the heart is big enough to absorb the impacts of being human, of change, of loss, of pain. And that's some of what we do when we practice, you know, just being still and not itching or whatever. Like this little momentary practice of equanimity. And as we um, become, the heart becomes bigger and bigger in holding that, there's a, there's a confidence that grows. And it, life feels much more open. In um, psychotherapy, one of the, the key components of psychotherapy, it's sort of across different orientations, one of the key components is something that, that's often called uh, exposure, exposure therapy. Meaning that um, anxiety, a lot of symptoms, but anxiety, restlessness, thrives on avoidance. And um, it's like our associations, you know, with the feared object and the feared outcome those associations stay really tight, tightly knit, when we are avoidant, yeah? So just to take a very concrete example, maybe it's like the classic is like snake, snake, anxiety around snakes, right? And uh, if somebody were to to come into a therapeutic setting and, and was, was getting um, some kind of exposure, cognitive behavioral exposure-based treatment for anxiety, they would um, begin by creating a kind of hierarchy of, of like anxiety. Everything from, um, you know, like writing the word snake in the clinical room would be like a two out of a hundred, maybe. And then the boa constrictor wrapped around your neck is a hundred, yeah? And uh, they would gradually work their way through exposing themselves to the feared stimulus, maybe writing it, or seeing a picture, or a video, or going to, walking past a pet store, right? And then eventually, they, you know, and each time, with each level, there would be an exposure to the feared stimulus in the absence of the bad result. Yeah. And during this process, they would be asked to sort of de-escalate the freak out of the moment until there was sufficient mastery to move forward. 
Yeah. It's called systematic desensitization or, or habitu- becoming habituated in this systematic way, this progressive, gradual way. In mindfulness, it's more like uh, unsystematic desensitization. Yeah. Because we don't plan out what will disrupt our peace. We don't plan out what we've avoided. Yeah. That, and that will, will, will return, yeah? And if we, we sit and stay with the practice, whatever can disrupt our peace will. Yeah. And that's what I was talking about with it's not an accident what arises for us. It's part of the logic of our path. And from this perspective, mindfulness is a kind of um, diametrically opposed to avoidance. And avoidance, experiential avoidance, trying to control what we are exposed to, to alter the frequency of events we are exposed to. This is um, at the heart of anxiety. Um, now in this process where we're, um, it brings us back to, to that, the cultivation of equanimity and a kind of confidence in the heart. The Buddha, um, one teacher summarized the Buddha's teachings as untangle and be free. So what does this mean, untangle? Um, The Buddha gave a number of different maps of, of what it's like to be human. Sort of cut that pie up in different ways in terms of the five senses and the mind, that's one map. Four foundations of mindfulness, maybe we could say is another map. The aggregates, this would be another map. And one of my main teachers, Shinzen Young, has cut up the, the, uh, the pie a little bit differently And he's cut up the subjective pie into feeling, meaning distinguished from sensation, ordinary sensations, but emotional type sensations. Internal talk, like we actually hear ourselves thinking. And internal images. Maybe you can sense the the activity of those three spheres. Like even right now, there's a certain kind of idling of my emotional body. I can feel its presence in different parts of my body. It's sort of most active along the front axis of my body. And I can hear some internal talk, 
the center of narrative gravity is composed of internal talk. And even when our eyes are open, but more clearly when our eyes are closed, there's, we have, uh, we think in pictures, we think in words, but also in pictures. And this, um, those components, when we're freaking out, get tangled up. And when we're in really anxious states, our attention is pinballing from feeling to talk to image, back and forth, tangled up, very little mindfulness yeah, brought to the process. And when we reach a kind of um, crescendo point in, f- in the freak out moment, yeah, um, it's, it's, th- it's often, uh, often those three channels of data that are getting tangled up. And sometimes we can be mindful, right? You can be mindful with it. We can be tracking it, tracking it, tracking it. And then there's this precipitous collapse of the mindfulness. Yeah. And the moment it becomes too much is the moment the awareness collapses. We can track this in our experience. And meditation is a way, is like a training ground, as I was saying, to do this. So what does it mean to actually infuse attention, awareness, mindfulness into these components of our emotional life? If we can resolve these three strands of experience The, it becomes our the experience becomes much more manageable, yeah. and it's like we step off the ground of that center of narrative gravity and into the space of of body, the space of awareness. couple more things. For me, um, the themes around self and self-clinging and anxiety are, are very closely linked because um, much, much social anxiety, and a lot of our anxiety is social in one way or another, but much of that is um, 
it's like this fear of being uh, found out in one way or another. And part of what Dharma practice is doing for us is helping us both become more and more transparent to ourselves and live in a way that is um, where we have fewer and fewer secrets. And when we have no secrets, we can't be found out. And so some of what's been so, you know, moving for me in um, Jack and other teachers is this, this, uh, this emphasis on kind of um, gathering all the different pieces of the self and folding it into the Dharma life. The theme of kind of integration and wholeness and no part left out. The Dharma wants all of your life. And when it begins to touch all the corners of our past when it begins to touch all the corners of what's arising for us now, uh, when it begins to touch our behavioral patterns, it, it doesn't mean we, our, our behavior is perfect, but when the Dharma begins to touch and begins to bless all of the corners of our life, um, there's less and less sense of like that we could be found out. Yeah. And there's a lot of freedom in that. There's a lot of freedom in that. So we work through, um, you know, that which the Dharma doesn't touch, there's usually clinging. Yeah. And it's clinging to some, some egoic, uh, structure to some egoic role. And part of the value of of Dharma practice is beginning to, we ask the question, am I that? Am I that? And we ask it for a thousand things. Am I that? And this process, as we see, like, um, as we see that, 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 I am this, I'm not that, that, that is always at least a little wrong. And as we gain more and more confidence in that, as we sense more and more that uh, what we thought was pointing back at the center of our being, I am this, I am that, was actually just pointing at the center of narrative gravity. Yeah. And that, that, that is an illusion. 
there's not an actual center point. So we see that as we develop like a heartfelt confidence in this, we have less and less investment in protecting the view, I am this, I am not that. And when we're not protecting in that way, there's the grounds for anxiety are, are weakened. Because our life, life, the experience of life, ceases to be this constant challenge or threat to ego. Or constant affirmation of, yes, I am this. The Buddha said ultimately, um, not apart from relinquishing all do I see any safety for living beings. And uh, not apart from relinquishing all do I see any safety for living beings. And so ultimately, we, uh, we can see anxiety, restlessness as a variant of clinging. And the, appreciate the, the medicine of letting go. And sometimes I do feel like not always, but sometimes I feel like all of my anxieties converge at the anxiety around death. And, uh, and that there's something in, in coming, in finding a place in the heart for the, our mortality that feels central in resolving anxiety. And I was thinking of a, 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 a dear friend of mine who uh, is, is, uh, is healthy um, and in her, in her 80s. And at the end of a, of a retreat, we, we sat together during the closing circle where people had a chance to, to share. Uh, I remember she said, uh, today is a good day to die. Yeah. And that uh, stayed with me. So we live in such a way that um, that any day, each day, might be a good way, good day, to die. Yeah. Yeah. This is the sense of completeness of the Dharma life. 
life feels complete. Let's just sit for a moment. So as always, please uh, pick up whatever is of use and leave behind all the rest. Is, is it, uh, yeah, an okay, let's shoot, let's, sh- let's lower the bar a little bit. An okay day to die, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, whatever, whatever, uh, goodness, uh, is here in the room. May it uh, remind you of your own. And may that be a cause of, uh, of happiness for yourself and others. Thank you. Have a good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.